Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, where you'll hear advice from experienced safety leaders on how to protect your people and business. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Lori Moore Merrill, U.S. Fire Administrator. Before she was appointed to the highest possible position in the American Fire Service, Dr. Lori served for three years as the President and CEO of the International Public Safety Data Institute, which she founded after retiring from a 26-year tenure as a senior executive in the International Association of Firefighters. Dr. Lori discusses how to stay wildfire safe and ready in the wildland urban interface and how organizations can adapt to the changing landscape. Let's listen in. Hey, Dr. Lori, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So you hear those stats that 90% of Americans, or some really high number like that, live within close proximity to a big box retailer, and that seems to make sense with our dense urban environments. But I was pretty shocked to learn that close to one-third of the U.S. population lives in the wildland urban interface, and that's a really large number. Can you start by explaining what the interface is and why it's a huge area of concern for wildfires? I would be happy to. So we'll start with the WUI, or what we call the uh, Wildland Urban Interface. And so the Wildland Urban Interface is an area between what was an urban or a suburban area, community, and the forested area, whether it is a national park or just a general forested area uh, adjacent to communities. What has happened is that over time, we have taken down trees and expanded those communities into that space that once was forested. And so it's that community that has gone into an area that was once forest is now the interface. And so we wanna be really careful about how we say what we say. In other words, wild land is a location. The urban area is a location, suburban areas location. The interface is a location. And we even have areas that we call intermix. And that intermix goes to where houses are actually built inside some of the forested areas. And so we're actually having people who want to go live uh, in those forested areas. The problem that all of these locations have today is wildfire, which you mentioned. And so we want to be very deliberate when we talk about wildfire. Wildfire can occur in any of those locations. That's a great distinction. So what are some of the recent trends or perhaps headlines around wildfires in these interface areas? You know, it's interesting that you ask that because there are certain trees that depend on fire. We've had our tribal communities who have used fire effectively in their culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it wasn't until we began to clear some of this space and put homes on geography that was always fire prone. And so just because we cleared the trees and put homes there does not mean that geography is not still fire prone. And that's been the the breakdown, I think, in what has occurred is we don't understand that building out a community um, in that land space makes it safe, particularly if we don't adhere to building codes and standards created for that kind of building. When we saw the issue, the fire service and the the overall fire service industry said, hold on, if you're going to build in a fire-prone area, you must use fire-resistant building materials. 
You must have certain types of roof. No wooden sheds or wooden fences around your homes. The unfortunate part is that as these communities build out, often the builders, in order to make it cheaper and get things moving faster, get people you know having opportunities to live in their homes faster, they are using lesser materials than they should in this type of area. In other words, they are using materials that are going to burn. So we're not adhering to codes in these spaces. In fact, many communities haven't even adopted these codes as they should in these spaces. And so I think that's part of the the overall mindset that's caused some of our issues in the interface. What are some examples of wildfires that have happened recently that maybe would help people say, you know what, it could happen to me too? Oh, I love that question. Certainly, one of the bigger statistics I think that's sobering for me is that in the, the last 17 years, we have had the 10 largest fires in U.S. history just in the last short number of years. And that includes like the Camp Fire, the Paradise Fire, the Woolsey Fire, the Caldor Fire. We are, are looking at fires that have taken place uh, that are massive, over 100,000 acres uh, burning. It's, it's a stunning amount of land, but also the homes that have taken place and the deaths that have occurred in these fires. And I think that this is something for me that helps us understand that a lot of this is climate change driven, these fires, but it's coupled with the fact of what we've already talked about is taking down trees and forested areas and building communities and not building them to code inappropriately so that we are, are we're really contributing to the potential loss because of the way we built and the cause of the way we're building out in these fire prone areas. So when we have a fire, your loss is gonna be greater because we haven't built resilient communities. And so if we don't pay attention to the resilience of what we're building, which means homes that are materials that are not gonna burn. So these are the kinds of things that we've gotta think through. And I think in this space, uh, if I may, there's a different scenario that's really climate change driven as well. And this took place with the Marshall Fire. The Marshall Fire was different. It took place in Colorado, the Waldo Canyon area, but the Marshall Fire as well in that space in Boulder County, and it not being an interface necessarily contributing to this. This was a grass fire that was community-driven and moved through that community. It burned 1,080 homes very quickly. And it had nothing to do with trees burning. It had everything to do with ember movement from home to home in a drought-ridden community. So let's not trick ourselves into thinking this only happens in the interface and contributing to what we've talked about, though that's the largest portion. But it can happen in any suburban community uh, with these fine fuels that can burn in a drought-ridden scenario. So yes, it is getting worse. It is climate-driven. And we are contributing to part of the problem by the way and where we built. Are there some communities or cities or towns that are doing better jobs than others? Oh, I love that question. Yes, I just mentioned Waldo Canyon. So we recently visited uh, with the heads of some of the national fire organizations. Uh, USFA went out and did some community engagement. And we went to Boulder County and we went to uh, a community that is now in the, they literally overlook um, the burn scars from the Waldo Canyon fire. And so they understand very clearly 
what they have to do to mitigate their uh, risk. And so this community, every Saturday, the whole of the community, there's a hundred homes or more there. And every Saturday, this community gets together and they have groups and they go out and they do their risk reduction. In other words, if there is some sort of vegetation that's touching your home, it is removed. If there is a landscape that is dry or uh, appears vulnerable, it is removed. I mean, these are things, this is what mitigation looks like and how they're doing their own engagement. Because I'll be very frank with you, there are not enough firefighters in this country to get ahead of this issue. There are not enough firefighters when we have these large-scale fires. There just aren't. So we need communities to engage, to make their risk at a, a level that they become resilient. Understand how to reduce your own risk so that if you live in a fire-prone area, it is much less likely to have impact. That means if the fire comes, then our recovery time is much shorter because we built resilience. We've mitigated the risk. We've done community risk reduction. And that's what right looks like. All of us need to understand what we can do in our own communities. I really like that idea of personal and community responsibility as opposed to just pushing it off to the authorities who will come help me in time of need. That's fantastic. Are there any big misconceptions out there that you see when it comes to the interface? Or is it really just maybe just ignorance, do you think, of the issue? Most people just don't even know about it. They're not educated. You know, I think that the latter is the case, that people aren't educated. You know, they buy into these beautiful landscapes. What are the building materials in that home before I buy it? Can I get insurance in this community? That's the new question, right? Can I get insurance in this community before I buy that home? And I think that that's going to be one of the main drivers that is the awakening call uh, for everyone buying in the interface communities. Because our insurance organizations, the companies, they are choosing either not to renew and certainly no new policies if you live in one of these fire-prone areas and proper mitigation has not been done. Usually when you look at insurance or getting insurance for your home, wherever you buy, certainly if you're going to have a mortgage, you're going to have to have insurance. Well, it's typically just about your home, right? And the risk mitigation and all of that at your home. In the wildfire space, however, particularly in the interface, it's not just about your home. You can do everything right. You could have used fire-resistant materials. You can mitigate your landscape. You can make sure there's no wood around your property and even use gravel and all of that instead of grass around your landscape. But if your neighbor doesn't, then you still have risk. And so this is what the insurance uh, agencies are considering now, whether they choose to insure or not. And I think that's going to be the wake-up call for all of us. And certainly those choosing to buy, unfortunately, many have already purchased and did not realize where they were living in these homes. So there's a lot at play here, I think, Peter. Yeah, and it just speaks to the point that it really is a community activity. It's not something that you just have to focus on your own house or wait for the authorities. You've got to really take a community-based approach here. Yes. Every time, this is absolutely community-driven resilience. And that's a word that I, I really want to hit again, is resilience building. If we can build resilience in our communities, which means people understand, which we're active, and by the way, this is not a one and done scenario for fire because when you're mitigating the fuel load and that's your vegetation, I often say fuel, I want to make sure it's what's going to burn if there's a fire, right? What do you have that's going to burn? And if it's vegetation, 
then it regrows. So it's not like you can do it one time and you're done. If you're going to live in this area, you need to understand the structure you're living in, whether or not it's fire resistant, type of windows. I mean, everything, your vents, there are things that you can do to mitigate some of those risks around your home. And that builds resilience. Anytime we reduce risk, we increase our resilience factor, which means if there is a fire, I have less damage and I recover more quickly. Well, you talked a bit about what individuals can do, but what can organizations that are operating in or near the interface do to assess their risks and vulnerabilities when it comes to wildfires and help mitigate those? You know, I think it's the same um, for businesses as it is for homeowners to understand what kind of building materials did you use to construct any structure that you have. I mean, that's going to apply across the board. Making sure that we have fire-resistant structures is key understanding what that means to implement the Wildland Urban Interface Code. So the International Codes Council, or the ICC, has a WUI code, a Wildland Urban Interface Code, that is a national code. And so understanding that that needs to be implemented and understanding what that impact looks like for businesses. And so I would encourage any business owners to look that code up and understand what is in it. Um, One of the things is making sure that you have an evacuation plan. So it's not just about uh, the structure. It's about how do I get people out? And so we often practice that for evacuation out of a particular building. But in the interface, when we are building communities or businesses in these areas, often there's only one road into this whole community section, right? If I'm trying to get a lot of people out, there's only one road out. And so understanding the overall impact If I need to evacuate and we need to evacuate quickly because we've already determined and had a conversation about the fact that fire is fast. So evacuation becomes critical. First of all, for businesses, listen to the local authorities. If there's fire in the area, make sure that you are listening. If they say evacuate, evacuate because they understand a much bigger picture about your path out than you may. So getting people out of the area when you're told to do so is huge. Understanding the evacuation from the building, but the evacuation out of the community as well. So I think all of these things can apply when we're thinking about businesses operating in the interface. And where can people get help understanding the evacuation route from their area? Because like you said, people understand their building, they're in there every day and they have a plan on which places to go. Don't use the elevators, go down the stairs. They have the signs. People don't know what to do when there's a fire in the community. So where can you go for help with that? Certainly the municipal fire departments will have those evacuation routes. And so understanding what those are, fortunately, they have practiced this and they know, right, how to do it. And so checking in with your local fire departments, practicing those evacuation routes. You know, we talk about that a lot with kids in schools about how to get out of your home, practice and practice how to get out and have three ways to get out and all of that sort of fire prevention, fire safety, messaging that we do with children for structure fire, the exact same messages apply here. Know how to get out. And then encourage your employees as well. And your fire departments, your local fire departments will have these lists as well to make sure that you have a supply. What are you going to need? Prepare that, keep it in your trunk during sessions of high-risk wildfire in your communities. Make sure you're ready to evacuate so you're not scrambling. If you're at work, you still have it with you. If you're at home, you have it with you. And your family is ready to evacuate wherever you may be. But your local fire departments will have these kinds of routes and supply lists for you. 
No, that's fantastic advice. Are there secondary impacts of wildfires that organizations should prepare for? And I'm thinking of the recent fires in Canada that cast a, an orange haze over New York City and the surrounding area for many, many square miles. That's a great question and very timely. The Canadian wildfires, these were truly wildfires. And in Canada, their practices are that they don't, as long as it's just wildfire and it's in the wild land and not threatening a community, they let them burn. The vegetation needs fire in order to regenerate and that sort of thing. And so our environmentalists will, you know, say, let it burn because the trees need that as long as it's not threatening communities. Well, when the wind shifted and brought all of that wild land fire smoke toward the U.S., then this became a big issue. <laughs> and so as long as it was burning up there, it's fine. The smoke movement, however, now becomes an issue. And so we have to understand that we cannot control the wind movement. We cannot control where smoke goes. In fact, the California wildfires, we've often measured smoke and smoke particulate, which is the danger piece in New York. So smoke is going to be carried and the products of combustion are going to be carried. As long as it is um, vegetation, we're still looking at a lot of research about the impact of that. And certainly people with uh, breathing difficulty are affected more readily by smoke in the air. So it is a public health concern. When it hits the interface, however, and we have different materials, it's no longer just vegetation, but we're burning now plastics, synthetics. Think about all the things that's in your home. These do have much more toxic impact. And so understanding what's in smoke and what is in the particulate matter, and particulate just means that it's much larger and can still be breathed in, but now it has greater impact on your respiratory tract, right? So it's, it is something that can stick, it can maintain and cause impact in your body. And the unfortunate part of that is once the interface, if a community begins to burn, and a lot of these products are carcinogenic. And so now we're dealing with a much different public health issue than just those who are having difficulty breathing from asthma and uh, respiratory viruses and things like that. Anyone with a respiratory situation is going to have a hard time with any smoke. Once it's community smoke, then it can have long-term impact for everyone because of what is burning. And so this is something that I think everyone needs to understand about the difference, again, in wild land versus interface fires and what is burning, what's in that smoke. So yes, should we have the same things we wore during COVID in 95 masks available? Yes. Should we have things that are available just to help us cut that particulate in the smoke? Yes. And so we can take some lessons away from what we learned during the pandemic and some of the things that we kept on hand, uh, including those in 95 masks, that would be very helpful. And so having things like that that are readily available are going to be important. Well, this is all a very big problem. So are there any emerging technologies or perhaps innovative approaches that organizations should be aware of when it comes to wildfire preparedness or their general response? You know, we have a lot of technology and innovation that is taking place right now. We have helped to support an innovation challenge, in fact, with a group called XPRIZE. And so XPRIZE has launched an innovation challenge because of this overall impact on the world, really, because wildfire is a global issue. With the technology challenge or an innovation challenge, what we want to do is understand the point of ignition because we can stop then the spread. It's much like we do in a house fire. 
If I can get firefighters there to suppress the fire as close to the point of ignition, we can stop the fire in the room of origin, perhaps, before it spreads to the rest of the home. Then I minimize damage, I minimize impact. Well, we want to do the same thing with wildfire. If we can get as uh, resources to suppress as close to the point of ignition as possible, then we stop the spread. And so this innovation challenge is about understanding what role technology can play in understanding point of ignition and identifying it quickly. The second part is the suppression part. So we're going to need technology to engage in suppression as well. We have aerial support. Certainly we can do aircraft. We're now looking at using drones or unmanned aerial devices. And so there's a lot of innovation around that as well. That's primarily for the wild land. In the interface and certainly in our urban suburban communities, we need fire stations located appropriately within communities. We need those apparatus staffed appropriately with four firefighters per apparatus. That's our national standard. And so having an an effective response force is how we would say that in the fire service, having an effective response force that can deploy quickly to mitigate and stop the spread of fire is what we want. And so technology will have a role in that. And uh, notification, identification, and response is key once we have the ignition located. So as we wrap up here, what's the most important thing that you feel people should remember and take action on when it comes to this topic? You know, I think, Peter, that I would want everyone to understand where they live. I think that's first and foremost. What was on the land before your home was there, particularly if you live in an area that, you know, is backed by a beautiful mountain with a lot of foliage, beautiful trees and grasses. The same thing applies in our more rural areas, particularly, and where the urban and suburban has expanded into the rural. And we're seeing a lot of continued community growth in those areas that were rural and now they're becoming much more suburban. It's important that people understand that aspect as well. And I think that they should know too about the overall climate change impact because a lot of this wildfire is definitely linked to climate change where we're having an increase in drought, a lower relative humidity, longer um, terms of um, just overall extreme heat in areas that can drive the drought as well. So it becomes very circular. The other thing I'd like people to do is understand that fire, wildfire in particular, is a weather event. You know, most people don't think about that. You hear about storms, you hear about hurricanes and tornadoes, but they don't understand that fire is a naturally occurring weather event as well. And so given that, the National Weather Service is the entity that issues the red flag warnings. So if you live in an area and you hear your weather person on the local news saying, we have a red flag warning in effect today, you should heed that the same as you do a tornado warning or a hurricane warning, a flood warning, storm warnings. In other words, the conditions are prone, the conditions are ready or probable. If there's an ignition, it's going to be a big wildfire. So anytime we have a red flag warning, understand and start to think about the fact that that's a major storm warning or equivalent to should there be an ignition. And so 
take heed of those. And you can go to the Weather Service and actually find maps. The the National Weather Service will have maps of where we see drought and how it's going to expand in the next six months or a year, or even, you know, 25, 50 years. What are we looking at from a drought perspective? Because that helps contribute to the conditions that initiate a red flag warning. So I would love for people to, again, understand where you live, look at these weather predictions, look at the climate change trends, what are we seeing? And then understand if your home or business has been built to code and not just any building code, the interface building code, the WUI code, the wildland urban interface building code. Understand what materials your home is made from. And if you are in an area where your neighbors may not have mitigated or reduced their risk uh, on their properties as much. And so that, those kinds of things are important. So remember if you're told to evacuate, this is not like standing in your home and withstanding a, a hurricane. It's not the same. And so we need you to understand if local officials say evacuate, evacuate. Well, Dr. Lori, thank you so much for being on the show. I think your advice was very timely and fantastic. And I certainly learned a lot. And I really appreciate the community-based approach, which I didn't really think about before. So thank you for that. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Absolutely. To learn more about Dr. Lori's work with the U.S. Fire Administration, check out the links in the show notes. Tune in next week for more expert advice to help you protect your business and people. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.